Amen, amen. Hey, grab a seat, and as you grab a seat, grab a Bible, get it in your hand. If you have one, if you didn't bring one under a seat nearby, you'll find a Bible under there. Grab it. Open to Acts chapter 1. If uh, you're new to navigating the Bible, Acts is the fifth book into the New Testament, so towards the back of your Bible, get there with us with a copy of God's Word in your hand, Acts chapter 1. It was uh, probably a little more than a month ago. uh, One of our vehicles needed an oil change, so um, I grabbed my two-year-old, and we hopped in the car, and uh, we went down for what I was hoping would be one of those like 15-minute oil changes. And when we pulled in, we were like three, four cars deep. So what, what I had hoped to have been about 15 minutes turned into about 45 minutes sitting in the Jiffy Lube lobby. And uh, we walked in there. I sat down on a chair. My two-year-old ca- crawled up on my lap, and he sat there for about a minute and a half. And uh, from that point on, uh, we took two very different approaches to how we were going to spend the 45 minutes in this waiting room. I sat in the chair. He walked around the chair. He crawled under the chair. He rolled on the floor in front of me. He went over to, like, the garage where they were working, and he pressed his face up against the glass to watch them work. He would uh, just mean mug everyone walking into the lobby with us. And they'd just keep staring. He'd crawl up on my lap to watch cartoons on my phone. He'd get down off my lap. He'd go to try to steal other kids' toys who were there. Uh, 45 minutes of waiting, uh, we took two very different approaches to how that waiting looked. It it, it made me think, what if as adults we waited like a two-year-old? Like face pressed up against the glass while they changed our oil there? Both of us spent 45 minutes in a waiting room, took two very different approaches to how we were waiting. Um, I bring this up because um, we're three weeks into a study in the book of Acts, and if you've missed the first two, uh, no worries whatsoever, I can catch you up right now. Week one, uh, Jesus, the, the, res, the, the risen Jesus, he's uh, appearing over a period of 40 days to his followers, and in one of these instances, he tells them, hey, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unleash you soon into a worldwide mission that's going to change your life in every way that you go about living your life. But here's what I need you to do right now. Don't do anything. Just wait. In week one, we looked at this command that Jesus gives for his followers to wait, wait for his, him to send the Spirit. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. Last week, we saw the answer to the question why they were to wait. They were to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit because unless the Spirit came, there was no power for them to go out and do the thing that Jesus had called them to do. There was no power for the witnessing that they were to be. Um, Week three, what we look at today, um, we're going to see how they went about waiting. Uh, So uh, Jesus would, after this 40-day period where he would uh, come and appear to his followers and he'd teach them, he'd open up their minds and their eyes to uh, what Old Testament prophecies actually said about the Messiah. Jesus, as we saw last week, he ascends into heaven. And after his ascension, there they are. They know they've been left with this command to wait, but just imagine what that moment would have been like. Okay, we're waiting. What do we do? We wait, and there's a 10-day gap. There's a 10-day gap between Jesus ascending into heaven and the day of Pentecost that's coming that we're going to study next week, and I can't wait for that. There's a 10-day gap, though, and what we're going to see today is how the early Jesus followers spend the 10-day gap. We're going to look at how they went about Waiting, because here's the deal. How we go about waiting when God says wait is actually a very important thing. 
that waiting, as we often see it as a very passive thing, is actually a very active thing. And there's one characteristic that we're going to see about how the early Jesus followers spend these 10 days that will be crucial for us when God has us in the waiting room of life. There's one overarching driving thing that they devote themselves to in these 10 days that I believe sets them up for all of the days that are coming of the mission Jesus is going to unleash them on. And today, we're going to see what that one driving thing is and how it can set us up for the very things and the mission Jesus has called us to. So let's pray and let's get into God's word. Father, um, Lord, we come now and we're about to unpack a half of a chapter of your word. And Lord, we can, we can be here and we can go through the function of it all. I can say words and we can sit and listen and then we can leave and we can go have lunch and we can go on with the rest of our day. But Lord, we want you to show up in power right now. We're not here for a talk. We're not here for a motivational speech. We're not here for self-help. We're here to hear the living word of the living God. Because Lord, it's all we need. Our heart is to feast on this word. This is the word that your spirit longs to use to drive into our heart. And this is the only word that can change us from the inside out. Lord, motivational talks can change our behavior for a season. Lord, my words uh, infiltrating this message can do some things. But Lord, nothing lasts unless it's your word. So God, get me out of the way right now. And if I'm about to say anything that's not of you, Lord, shut my mouth. Because we're here to hear from you. We want you to get glory in this place. We want you lifted up. God, forgive us when we elevate ourselves. We just want you. We just need you. So God, would you speak? God, would you speak right now? Through your word. God, drown out the distractions of the past week. Lord, show yourself greater than the anxieties we have of the week to come. And for the next 33 minutes, God, say what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So enter into the waiting room with them of these 10 days, and let's see what defines how they go about waiting. Verse 12, Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they, the apostles, the disciples, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Okay, just stop there, and we have to, let's understand the setting of this a bit. Uh, So Jesus, in his last appearance before he ascends, um, we now know where that that event happened, where he looked at his disciples, he looked at the apostles, and he said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then, boom, he 
ascends into heaven as he's teaching them this. That happened on the Mount of Olives. And so uh, Mount of Olives, eastern side of this old town Jerusalem. If This is kind of a picture. If we were standing on the eastern wall of old city Jerusalem and we were looking east, this is the Mount of Olives. This is what it would look like today if we were standing there right now. Um, and it says that the Mount of Olives was a Sabbath day journey. Now, we got to understand what that means. How long is a Sabbath day journey? Um, because of the, the, what maybe started as reverence for the Sabbath, uh, to keep it holy, to not work on the Sabbath, um, some rules began to creep in to guard against any sort of work happening on the Sabbath. One of these rules was, was um, a Jewish tradition would put in place how far you could walk on a Sabbath before it became work. And so a Sabbath day journey, it didn't count if you were in the city just going about your normal stuff, but if you were going to walk somewhere, you couldn't go more than, it was roughly about two-thirds of a mile. And so uh, if you wanted to go for a walk with your wife outside of the city walls, like, you better be back before two-thirds of a mile, or y'all working on the Sabbath. Uh, Mount of Olives is about a half mile east of old Jerusalem proper, and so roughly, I mean, you're talking... 12, 15-minute walk back into the city here. In verse 13, it says, When they had entered, when they'd entered the city, they went up to the upper room. Now, is this the upper room where they shared the last meal with Jesus? Potentially. In my opinion, probably. It doesn't tell us with specificity whether it is or not, but they're back in Jerusalem. They go into this upper room where they're staying. Um, Peter and John... And James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Who are these people? Who are these people? These are the disciples. How many are listed here? Eleven. We're missing one. We'll get to that to come here as we go through this passage. Now verse 14. Here it is, folks. All these with what? All these with one accord were devoting themselves to what? To prayer. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. What you see is as they come back into the city, they go into this room where they were staying in, and all of a sudden they're like, okay, Jesus said, wait, how are we going to spend this time? We don't know when he's going to pour the Spirit out. We don't know when that's going to happen, but there's some things we can do right now to prepare for that thing to come, and what do they just start doing? They just start praying, and now I want you to see a couple of things of what it says about how they go about praying. And you have on kind of the top line of your notes there that praying takes waiting from a passive thing to an active thing. Pray, when God enters us into seasons of waiting, they're waiting for the Spirit to come. What we said two weeks ago is that times, even on the other side of Pentecost, those of us in here who know Jesus Christ have His Spirit dwelling inside of us, there are still seasons that God says, I just need you to wait a second. I need my Spirit to go before you. I need to lead and prompt in this. When God has us in those seasons, we often view Him as a passive thing. I'm just there. I'm just twiddling my thumbs. No. Praying takes these seasons from a passive thing to an active thing. Now look at some 
truth aspects about this prayer. Three aspects we want to pull out of this passage about the kind of praying that they're doing. Two of these we'll take from verse 14. The other one we'll take from the rest of the chapter here. But look back at verse 14. All these with, say it again, with one accord. Stop right there, write this down. We are unified by prayer when we're waiting. All these with one accord. Uh, The idea of one accord, it means this. It means to be of one mind. It means to be of one purpose. What What you see about the early Jesus followers, the way they're described, they are a people of one accord. They are of one mind and they are of one purpose. And Jess, I need you for a second. When they get back into the upper room, they just straight lock arms in prayer. Your arms are way bigger than mine. (laughs) They're right here in prayer. And they don't move from this. The way Luke's writing this is he's describing this 10-day period as if they do not move from this position. And here's what I think happens. As God's people get in one accord with each other, they want to pray together. And as they pray together, God makes us even more in one accord. That there's something about this power of God's people getting together to pray together. That the, that the, the image that came to mind this week, is, it's, it's prayer is almost like God's knitting needles for his people. As we pray, as we come together and we get together and we get on our face together and we cry out together, God is knitting his people together into this one beautiful, unified, one mind, one purpose family. And it's a powerful thing that we see here of God's people praying together in one accord. Um, One of the most powerful lessons I learned on the unifying one accord power of prayer actually came in my marriage. Um, we, when we got married, we bought a $66,000 gem of a house in Crawfordsville, Indiana. And uh, when we bought this thing, the roof was shot. And um, so I remember it was a spring, it might have been our first or second year of marriage, but it was a spring night and this, this storm came blowing through. And uh, that, that big window out front there, there was a couch behind that. And I remember the blinds were open and I'm watching the storm and it's completely dark in my house. And I say, okay, Lord, if you could, with this storm, do enough damage to our roof to get an insurance claim out of this thing while protecting us inside this house, I'll take it. And so we go to bed that night. I get up the next morning, and it's like Christmas morning. I run outside, and I'm like, yes! There's shingles everywhere. The roof is just an absolute mess. And I'm like, our God is an awesome God. (laughs) And um, we didn't have any money. And so we bought this thing on a land contract from someone. And the deal with the land contract was we had insurance on the contents of the house. They, They had insurance on the structure of the house. And so I call, and I'm like, hey, we got roof damage. Let's get this thing fixed. And they're like, you pay the deductible. I'm like, whatever, I'll do it. A couple weeks later, it's dragging on, dragging on, dragging on. Finally, I'm like, what's, what's going on? And the guy goes, well, here, here's, here's the deal. Um, we can fix the roof, you know, and you'll, you pay the deductible, right? Yeah, I'll pay the deductible. Okay, 
great. Deductible is $10,000. Like, I'm, I'm like 22. I'm like, how's $275.74 sound? I'm just like, on my stomach, I'm like, that's not insurance for us. That's the cost of the roof. By this time, we are the house on the block with the big blue tarp over it. When it was raining, it was coming through our entryway. And so in that, like I have, before I got to talk to my, my, my awesome new bride about this, I have like a period of a couple hours and I'm just seeking the Lord. And I remember very clearly the Lord was just like, you're not going to go after him about this. You're going to give grace in this and we're going to figure this out. And so like here I come, bold leader of my new home that's raining through the entryway. And I approach my bride about this, and she's, I tell her, and she's just like, what are we going to do? I'm like, here's, here's what we're going to do. And she's like, that don't solve the rain through the roof thing. And in that moment, I just like thinking I'm being spiritual leader guy. I've made my decision, and this is what we're going to do. I miss that part of the pre-marriage counseling thing. <laughs> and so I just completely shut down my bride from voicing any sort of her concerns, any sort of wisdom that she has on it, any sort of her own seeking of the Lord on the best thing to do. And this that sends our new marriage into like month, month and a half of just friction. Like as we pull up to our house, the big blue tarp house on the, like people would stop us at church and be like, hey, that's not like your long-term plan, right? And we're like, no, we hope not. But like every time we saw the big blue, it was just like friction inside. Finally, like we are so not unified on this. Finally, one night, I don't know what took us so long to get here. Hand in hand, we walked to that same couch in front of that same window where I prayed that blasted prayer. I'm not kidding. A month and a half of tension melted away in five minutes of us praying together about what to do next. We prayed together, about a three-minute conversation followed that prayer, and from that day forward, there was still raining in the entryway, the blue tarp was still on the roof, but we were unified lockstep in how we were going to go about this. Listen, prayer is a unifying force in the hand of our God. The family that prays together, the church that prays together, the ministry team, the small groups that pray together, and the marriage, listen up. The marriage that prays together. Men, grab the hand of your wife, go sit on a couch and start praying with her. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't care. I'm not a good prayer. God doesn't care. But there's something unifying when God's people will get together and pray. And when they're in one accord, we'll want to pray together. And when we pray together, he makes us in more of one accord with each other. He brings us on one mind and one purpose. And I believe these disciples understood that. 
I think they knew, whoa, um, we can't know in totality this mission Jesus has just called us to, but here's what we can figure it out. It's pretty massive, and if we're not lockstep, one accord, unified in this thing, we'll never be able to accomplish it. And here's the thing. For the church of Jesus Christ today, when, a ch- when churches stay in one accord, unified, praying together, what God can do with that church is miraculous things. But when we get so off track and like, well, I like this carpet color and I like this carpet color and what about if we painted the walls like that? Who cares? Let's just get together and pray and watch what God is going to do. And so you see this one accord prayer going on, all these with one accord. Go back to verse 14. What are they doing? All these with one accord were, what's the word that Luke uses here? They were devoting themselves to prayer. Okay, uh, second thing, write it down. We are to persevere in prayer when we're waiting. We're to persevere in prayer. Um, the way Luke writes this, he doesn't, he's not communicating as if the very first day they got back to Jerusalem, they went to this upper room and they just had one prayer meeting. And then they just disperse for the rest of the 10 days. What Luke is trying to communicate here, this devotion to prayer, this persevering in prayer, this praying and not giving up, this just like, okay, what should we do tomorrow? Um, how about we just meet right back here and keep praying? And then what should we do the next day? Let's just do that again. There's this devotion, persevering in prayer going on here. And as we, as we think about that and as we look at the early Jesus followers, um, I think we need a more, more of a wood-chopping mentality to this thing of prayer. So often we go, hey, have you prayed about it? Yeah, I prayed about it, like one time. Hey, are you praying for them? Yeah, I'm praying for them, like as God brings them to mind, like I'm praying for them. It, it would be, it, it, it's, it's almost like, the guy who shows up at the woods and he's got axe in hand and he's ready to go out there and cut down a tree, it'd be like him walking out there and taking one hack with the, with the axe and going, huh, didn't do it. Okay, see ya. The guy with axe in hand going out to cut a tree, he knows something. It's going to take chop, 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 chop. He's going to sweat. His arms are going to hurt. But he knows something. If the tree's going to come down, he better just keep chopping after it. I think we need more of a wood chopping mentality to this thing called prayer. Not one and done, but I'm going to get up today and I'm going to pray about it. And then as God wakes me up in the middle of the night, I'm going to pray about it. And on my lunch break, I'm going to go for a walk and I'm going to pray about it. And then that night, I'm going to pray about it. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to chop and I'm going to chop and I'm going to chop and I'm going to trust that one day that I have a mighty, powerful God who's going to bring the tree crashing down. But we can get so quickly tired in prayer. And I think God is just after to devote yourself to it, devote yourself to it, devote yourself to it. Keep chopping, keep going, keep going, keep going. Now here's the deal. You have the same question I do. But didn't Jesus say that the Father knows what we need before we even ask him? So why do I have to just keep chopping? Why can't it be the one swing of the axe and the thing comes down? He knows what he wants to do. He knows what we need because here's the deal. He's after the relationship in the midst of, in the, midst of the result. 
He is way more interested in the relationship of us being out there with him, chopping away, chopping away, chopping away, because he knows as we're chopping away in prayer, he's chopping away on the heart. Trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. We get so result-oriented with prayer. We love the kind of praying that views God as the cosmic vending machine that these three buttons here and the little spinny thing goes and the candy drops to the bottom and we go, thank you, God. God's after way more of the kind of prayer that's about communion with him and just be with me and I want you to trust me and I want to grow this relationship with you and we're going to get to the result of it together. Parents, you know this. You love when your children come to you and invite you into the midst of their problems they're trying to navigate. You love when your toddler comes and says, Daddy, I need help. You love when your teenager will humble themselves and come and go, can you help me with this? You love still when your adult children come and say, we need some counsel on this. You don't just love solving the problem for them. You love the process of walking with them in the midst of solving the problem. I believe the character and the nature of our God is the very same thing. That the devotion, the persevering in prayer is just as much of his goal for us than, than the result of the prayer he's trying to bring about. And so you see this here in verse 14, back to the upper room. With one accord, they're devoting themselves to prayer. And now look at some things that are going to happen here in the midst of the 10 days of waiting for the Spirit. Verse 15, in those days... Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about how many people? 120 people. So 60 seats in that section, 60 seats in that section. Will you two side sections just stand up for us real quick, please? I want us to see something. The kingdom of Jesus Christ spread across the globe from a group of people that started about this big. When Jesus' earthly ministry was done, no one measuring success by today's church growth metrics would have went, wow, Jesus' ministry is a booming success. The Spirit of God would come down on 120 people and he would give them boldness to witness in Jerusalem and then he would scatter them to Judea and Samaria and then he'd scatter them to the ends of the earth and the kingdom of God that we see, the, the vast expanse of it from end of the globe to end of the globe today started with a group of people about this big. And listen, the 120 ain't the hero. The hero is the God whose spirit dwelled in the 120 who he used to spread that message. Y'all can sit down. But you get this sense of how many of Jesus' followers you have here. Um, wait till Pentecost is about to happen. That's going to get added to quickly. But Peter stands up among the 120 and he says, verse 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning who? Judas. So remember how many of the disciples were just listed earlier? 11, now we're going to address the uh, state of the 12th here. They, 
these things had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, verse 17, of end of 16, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. 17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadalma, that is field of blood. Now, if you're new to the whole Jesus story, let me just kind of catch you up on what Peter um, kind of the leader of the disciples at this time is talking about. Jesus in his earthly ministry, you probably heard, he had 12 close, close disciples. There were more people following Jesus at the time, but he, he poured into his predominant amount of discipleship energy into these 12. One of the 12, a guy by the name of Judas Iscariot, would betray Jesus. He would approach the authorities and say, hey, I hear and you guys are interested in this teacher I'm following. Let's work out a deal. Um, you give me some cash, I'll, ha- I'll lead you to him, I'll hand him over to you. And so the deal is made. Uh, Judas, after the Last Supper, um, he executes this plan. He leads the authorities out to Jesus and the disciples while they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is handed over to the authorities. Judas is handed money for his role in it. Immediately, Judas is overcome with just, um, I don't know what you would even call it, overcome with remorse grief. He takes the money that he got from handing Jesus over. He buys a field with it. He takes his own life in that field. And thus, you're left with the 11 disciples. Now look at what happens here, starting in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Peter's continuing to teach, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. Quote from Psalm 69, quote from Psalm 109. So, so one of the men who have accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a what? Remember that word. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Okay, Here's what's going on here. You have this early church in the season of waiting, waiting for the Spirit to come. Some scholars believe that what's happening here is the apostles are running ahead and they should not have done this. My personal belief as I study this, is, uh, and a lot of scholars kind of are with me in this camp, I don't think this is them running ahead. In fact, the way that you have Luke writing this He's writing this not with any sort of trying to communicate that this was the wrong move on the apostles' part. He also is writing it in such a way to highlight um, they're seeking the Lord in leading them to this decision. They believe, and Scripture would teach, that what is happening here is in fulfillment of some things David has written in the book of Psalms. Psalm 69, Psalm 109, they believe that Judas, this was spoken to hundreds of years before it ever happened. Judas was going to betray, and they now believe they need to fulfill the Scriptures to put someone in Judas's seat here. And, and I believe Luke's just communicating 
their desire to obey the Lord and replace this to go from 11 back to 12 apostles for the purpose of, back to verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a what? A witness. What did Jesus just call these two once this, what, what did Jesus just call these men to once the Spirit came on them? They would have power to, third point, write it down as this. We will be prepared by prayer when we're waiting. I believe what you have here are the early Jesus followers going, Jesus said to wait, he said to not go out on this mission without the power of the Spirit. But as they come together in prayer, there's some preparing that God is doing in the midst of this before the Spirit's going to come and they're going to get out and go to work on it. And one of the ways that God is preparing them for the mission that is ahead is he's replacing Judas's seat, which was now vacant, and he's putting Matthias in place. Um, this is an important principle for us. That one of God's greatest purposes in seasons of waiting are most likely to prepare us for the season that he has ahead. I grew up in the country in West Michigan, and um, I always enjoyed this as a kid. You'd drive down the road, and um, you could always, I, I loved to watch when a tractor was out in the field with its plow behind it. And there was just something so neat about the picture of on where the plow had not yet gone was hard kind of faded, cracked soil, but where the plow had already gone and the, the dirt was turned up, you had this lush, deep brown soil. And I, I always just loved, I don't know why, to watch a tractor drive through a field and you could literally see the progress that would happen of the field being prepared for a harvest. With that picture in mind, I want us, I want us to think about this statement right here. The soil for God's greatest works are prepared by the plow of prayer. Like when God has us in a season of waiting and all we're doing is just praying and we're praying and we're praying and we're not seeing any movement. We're like, is anything happening right now? Um, often on the other side of those seasons of intense prayer and waiting, um, God is... God is preparing us for what he has ahead, for the great harvest that he has ahead. Um, a, a, a quote attributed to John Bunyan that I absolutely love is this. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. That convicts me. Because if you're like me, your initial instinct is just to get up and start doing just go. I got 10 texts and 15 emails and 25 notifications and ding, 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 ding. And punt the phone into a pond. But it's just the urgency of the world in which we live. And every, we're so um, accessible from everyone and just bing, ding, 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 buzz, 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 buzz. And it just makes us go, 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 go. And we think unless we're doing something, we're not accomplishing anything. Here, listen, we're going to get to the whole doing thing. But I love this quote. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But until we've prayed, 
You can't do more than pray. And just what could our daily life look like if we would just stop and pray? Something convicting the day this week that I was studying this or preparing this portion of the message, I put this quote in here and then I went, I didn't even pray before I started prepping the message today. Be encouraged by that. But just how easily we just get into work mode, work mode, work mode, work mode. And these three points, just look back at them on your notes. We're unified by prayer when we're waiting. Prayer, prayer brings us in one accord. Where is there a lack of one accord in your life? Is there dissension in your marriage right now? Hand in hand on the couch tonight after the kids are in bed and just start praying. Is there lack of unity with other Christians in your life, another Christian in your life? Get together and just start praying together. That'll be weird. Yeah, it will. We are to persevere in prayer when we're waiting. Where, what in your life have you long surrendered and forfeited to still praying about that you just believe there's no movement there? What in your life do you need to pick the axe back up today and get back to chopping? And we're prepared by prayer when we're waiting. What season are you in right now that you just need to have a greater trust in the Lord than your circumstances to go, I don't get it. I don't know why he has me here. But God, I'm going to trust you today that you're preparing something in my heart that you want to prepare for the season that you have ahead where you want me to serve you. So here's the deal. A message like this today, I love when Pastor Joe preached on our prayer pillar. He said a very similar thing. A message like this today is, uh, has great potential to go, okay, let's do it. Let's pray. I can do this. I want to be better I want to be a better man. I want to be a better woman. I want to be a better prayer. Like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to do this. Listen, here's the deal. You will for two days. We can't muster up the strength to become a praying people. Here's why. Prayer is probably the most deeply spiritual work that we can possibly be involved in. And when we try to, like, lace up our bootstraps in the flesh to go, I'm going to be a better prayer. It doesn't work. So the heart of a message like today is simply this. When you fall in love with someone, you want to talk to them. 
If you're married in here, you remember those early days of dating, of courting your spouse? Eric and I would stay up talking on the phone till like 4 a.m. And I'd have an internship in the morning that started like 7. It was like so foolish. But you didn't care. You just wanted to talk. So a message like today is not at the heart of it. Lace up your flesh, the bootstraps of your flesh to go be a better prayer. A message of today is this. She asked God to put in your heart such a deep love for him that as you go through the day, you just want to talk to the one that your heart loves. Like the heart of today's message is not add prayer as another checklist to your spiritual list. Make prayer another compartment box to add to all the compartment boxes. The heart of today's message is, as Jesus grips your heart, you're just going to start talking to him as you go about your day. So stand with me, stand with me right where you're at. And I want to I wanna talk to you in here. I want to talk to someone in here. I want to talk to a group of people in here who hear something like that and go, I don't even know what that means. That you've come to church today and you've heard a message on prayer. You've heard a message on communicating with the living God, but you don't know the living God personally. Um, If you're here and you're like, I don't know if I have a relationship with Jesus. Frankly, I don't even know what you mean when you say, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Just hear this message as you leave here today. There has to come a point in your life where you see yourself the way that we need to see ourselves. You're not going to like what I'm going to say right here, but I want you to chew on it. You're not a good person. Your social media timelines will tell you you are. You're not. And it's not just that you've done bad things or wrong things in your life. You inherently at the very core of who you are are bad and wrong. And before, listen, listen, listen. Before you walk out on me, I want to tell you that I and every heart sitting in here around you knows that as well about ourselves from firsthand experience. I'm 19 years old. I grew up in the church. And the Lord finally opens my eyes to see this very thing. God, you thought you were this good moral person. You're wretched inside. And it was the point in my life where then this rescue cry could go up because here's the good news. This Jesus, who a lot of culture looks at as a historically great figure and teacher, this Jesus is far more than that. He is God come in flesh who took the penalty for that bad wrongness that God calls sin. He took it on himself. He died on the cross. He was buried in a tomb. He paid the penalty for our death on our behalf. He was sinless. We were sinful.
That Savior wants to know you. Look at me right now, even if you've grown up in your church and you've heard a message end like this umpteen hundreds of times. That Savior wants to know you. He doesn't just want you to know intellectually about him. He wants to know your heart. And may God, by his spirit in this place today, open up the eyes of any heart in here who doesn't know that Savior. And may the very first prayer that you pray walking out of here today be that prayer of the rescue cry going, Jesus, I want to know you today. And if you're in here and you're like, I think that's me and I don't even know if that's me and I don't even know what to do with what you just said, but I'll be right up here at the end of the service and I want to talk to you before you walk out of here if you have any confusion about that. Then here's the deal, here's the deal children of God. Once we've, once we've understood what we've been rescued from, the love relationship with Jesus begins and we just want to talk to him as we go about our life. And so, Father, would you make us a praying people? And Lord, I pray that in the sense not of us adding some religious duty onto a checklist of things, but God, would the heart of a praying people just be an overflow of a deep love and affection and thankfulness for how you have rescued us. May we depend on you in prayer this week. And God, for any heart in here who longs to know that they know you today, may you prompt their heart to enter into the relationship you so long with them before they leave these doors this morning. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, next Sunday, Pentecost. The Spirit's coming. Listen, it's going to get crazy up in here next week as we see what God does. Harvest, you are loved and you are sent. Have a great week.